they shall run and not be weary. That's a text to conjure with, especially for those who uh, may be distressed or downcast in soul. And it's the text for Spurgeon's sermon that he preached at the Young Men's Association in aid of the Baptist Missionary Society, their annual meeting on Thursday the 15th of April 1869. It was preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. Its title was simply The Unwearied Runner. It does have particular reference to and relevance for the young, but uh, Spurgeon tries to keep it uh, reasonably broad. He does tell us in the introduction that to the older Christian, incitements to zeal may be necessary, but to the young I need offer no exhortations to quicken their pace. With overflowing strength and buoyant spirits, the danger is not that young men should not run, but that they should run amiss, or that they should attempt to run in the right road in their own strength. And so he's speaking to people who he expects to be running, young men in particular. And he says, I want you to make sure that you run in the right way and that you run in dependence upon God himself. And so he speaks of the running, then the commendation of running, and then thirdly, the runner's girdle, that he waits upon the Lord, and lastly, the runner's staff. He has this promise that he shall not be weary. First then, the running. There are different paces among the Lord's servants. Ahimaz is swifter than Cushy, and John outruns Peter. But he who by faith has truly entered upon the road to heaven, though his march be slow and limping, shall nevertheless ultimately reach his journey's end. Scores of timid believers creep towards heaven as the snail crept into the ark, and yet, being chosen of God in Christ Jesus, they are safe. However, my brothers, there is no reason why you should imitate these slowly moving pilgrims. If Mephibosheth could be lame in both his feet, it is not desirable that you should imitate his limp. Respect for his infirmity must not be made into an excuse for your own sluggishness. So he's uh, pushing us to be runners uh, and not merely drifters or limpers if we don't have to be. Walking will always be the general and usual pace of the great host of God's elect, but there are a few chosen men whose hearts have been specially touched, who have learned to outstrip their fellows in their advances toward God and in their zeal for his service. So he's going to emphasise, first of all, this running and tell us it's the pace of energy. Running is the pace of energy. Too many play at work, he says, but the earnest man means work when he is working and throws his heart into it. It is dreadful to see some men at their ordinary occupation. I cannot call it labour. One drop of their perspiration must be a very costly thing, as rare as a pearl of the first water. But others throw their soul into whatsoever they have to do, and not only strike while the iron is hot, but make the iron hot by striking. They do not wait for opportunities, but accept the present event as an opportunity. They work with both hands and make the anvil ring again with the music of their hearty blows. Now in the service of God, we're bound to fulfil our work with the utmost degree of vigour. If the Lord's work is worth doing, it's worth doing well. And as the service of Christ is the highest in which any man can be engaged, the master ought to be served with body, soul and spirit. So running is this energetic way of going. 
Now, Spurgeon says that if we were to live always at the topmost bent of zeal, if we should put on high pressure and should work for Christ to the highest point of spiritual energy yet exhibited by mortal man, yet should we give but a faint return for that agony and bloody sweat, that cross and passion which have opened the kingdom of heaven for us. His incitement to run in the spiritual race is that Christ has laboured for us and that we should labour for him. The ideal I would form of the Christian man raised up to to do his master good service, says our preacher, is that of Elijah when he girded up his loins and ran before the chariot of Ahab. Hail old man, see how nimbly he flies along that dusty road, with what ardent enthusiasm he dashes forward to reach the shelter so soon to be needed, for his faith expects that speedily the heavens, which have gathered blackness, will pour down the needed rain. Be it yours and mine to outstrip the energy of this world, and so to run in our master's ways as to prove that the servants of Christ can render him more loyal and devoted service than princes win from their favourites and flatterers. Our instinct when we read something like that or hear something like that may be to say that he's expecting too much of us, he's demanding too much and that this is unreasonable. If we can just put that to one side for a moment and wait and see why Spurgeon is going to build up this case that especially for those who've got themselves naturally this zeal in their hearts, this native energy which has now been uh, enlivened by by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this is in fact not unreasonable. He's already told us that not everybody will run in the same way. He's already told us that most people are going to be walking. But he says, this is what I want you to strive after. This is what I want to to know whether or not you can be one of the runners. And then he says, running's not only the pace of energy. Running is a pace which indicates fullness of alacrity. And here he means a sort of a, a cheerful zeal in doing the work that you've been given to do. If your servant has an errand to do for you and he creeps along the road, it's probably because he's unwilling. But if he's thoroughly willing, he's usually forward and quick in all his movements. If that's true of an employee or a servant, how much more ought it to be true of the servants of God? There ought, in the service of our Lord, says Spurgeon, always to be a holy promptness and alacrity. I dare say you've noticed in the Gospel according to Mark how Mark uses about our Lord so often the words straightway and immediately. Mark's is the Gospel descriptive of Christ as a servant and it's one of the attributes of a good servant that he is prompt at once to do his Lord's bidding. So may the Holy Spirit enable us to wait with our eyes upwards to our great Master as the eyes of handmaidens are to their mistress and make us quick of understanding in the fear of the Lord so that the moment we receive the divine intimation or direction, our will and ability move spontaneously in cheerful effort. Isn't it lovely to see the way Spurgeon can weave together these uh, references and uh, images from the Word of God He's he's just adorning the, the principles that he's setting forth in terms either of uh, Mark's gospel as a whole and the vocabulary that he uses, not least of our Lord Jesus, or that uh, language from the Psalms of the eyes of handmaidens to their mistress. There's a biblical colour and liveliness about what he's presenting. In the third place, though, to run is to be diligent. What Spurgeon means here is 
basically to, to get a pace up and then to keep that pace up. He says, oh, the, the, the sort of Sunday school teaching that's so wretchedly common, just blethering on. And then the preaching that we sometimes hear, droning, cold, lifeless, sleepy, sleepy and wretched. The preacher doesn't seem to have any idea that he should deliver himself with force, life and energy. How very common then is the humdrum. It is deadly preaching, more fitted to send souls to sleep than to startle them out of their dreams. So he says you, you've got to keep moving. You've got to be a pressing forward. If you've begun, then do not stop. Oh, Master, he prays, teach us to be more diligent. We beseech thee, quicken us in thy ways. Help us no longer to crawl and creep upon thine errands, but to quicken our pace and run, putting heart and soul into all that we do. Lead us to persevere in your fear, not running with now and then a spasm of zeal, but with a constant sacred persistency, a stern and solemn devotion to the work which you have entrusted to our care. And then in the fourth place, running indicates thoroughgoing and hearty zeal. So you've got energy, alacrity, diligence, and now hearty zeal. If anything could make a man run, he says, it should be the fact that men are dying, dying without Christ, dying in their sins, to die eternally and perish without hope. Is this then, he says, not enough to stir us up and to get us moving? These four notes then may suffice to indicate what the running is. I look upon the runner in the road to heaven as one who has received the inner spiritual life in its highest degree. Luther called it, I think, a second conversion. It's a great thing when a man is not only saved from the sins of the world, but is also saved from the ordinary slothfulness of common Christians, when, to use apostolic words, he saves himself by God's grace from this untoward generation. Now, remember, Spurgeon isn't saying that you need to be converted a second time. What he is saying is this, Are you, as a Christian, ready to step up? Are you ready to go above and beyond the norm of ordinary Christian effort? Are you willing to, to stand out as a runner in a field of walkers? There are some who have the divine spirit so resting upon them that they could not be negligent in the master's work as others are. For them, the chill hand of charity must be exchanged for a far more fervid grasp. For them, the occasional feeble prayer must give way to long wrestlings with the angel, for they have learned that there is something higher to live for than domestic comfort and personal aggrandisement. So there's the runner, and there's the running. And Spurgeon is calling upon these hundreds, thousands of young men who were in front of him, and he's saying, which of you are going to be the runners? And I think it's good that we should feel the same force of that question. Are we going to, to slide along at the same poor dying rate that so many do, or are we going to press forward? Spurgeon says, I want to commend this running to you. I want you to, uh, he says, would to God that the young men now present and the young men of all our churches were by God's grace made to be runners. And he wants to commend that pace. And he's got, again, these various reasons why. First of all, it's a warming pace. He says the, uh, the illustri illustration that a, a big fire at Christmas won't warm someone as thoroughly as the exertion of running. And the comforts of the gospel and the doctrines of grace do not put men in such a comfortable frame of mind as do active exertions in the master's cause. 
So he says, give me two Christians, both truly converted to God, one of them a constant hearer of the word and a delighter in the sweet things of the gospel, but not a worker, and then show me another who hears the word and loves it, but who besides that is a diligent worker for his master, and I will without a moment's hesitation tell you which is the happier man of the two. You understand the point. It's not that the the less active person is not happy, but that the active man is happier. There's a warmth in his spirit. There's a, a, a vigor in his soul that has stirred him up. The man who, loving the truth and feeding on it, nevertheless works for the conversion of others, is the man to whom the Lord ministers secret springs of consolation, which make his heart glad. In watering others, his own soul is watered. If there be any Christians here then who are troubled with doubts and fears and despondencies and spiritual dyspepsia in general, let them ask themselves whether if they instructed the ignorant, fed the poor and cheered the downtrodden, they would not find in such a course the way to the most effectual remedy. And I think it's a, it's a great pastoral grief when the, the very people who we think would be remedied in their souls by getting up off their backsides and, and doing something, are the very ones who will say, I'm not in a position to do anything. I'm not in a fit state to do anything. And we want to say, but if you did something, it would do your soul good. It would improve your state and condition. It would clear your mind. It would warm your hand. It would remove those doubts and fears. And yet how often the That's the very reason we're given why someone shouldn't be doing anything or why they can't be expected to do anything. But running will warm you up. Then in the next place, running is a pace that clears the ground. The more slowly a traveller goes, the more likely will he be to notice the rough places of the way. But when he's quickened his pace, difficulties pass away rapidly. He's cleared that rough piece of gorse on the common. He's leapt that ditch. He's passed that muddy lane. He's climbed that hill. He's descended that valley. And while he's been running, he's not had time to notice the road because he's been looking toward the end. The pity then that some people sigh for on account of their petty persecutions and troubles, it's a shame to ask and a waste to give. Can we not suffer for Christ? If not, it must be because we're not runners, scarcely walkers. Our spiritual strength must be low and our life unhealthy. Oh, for more love and more faith and more spiritual vigour in our constitutions, and then we shall clear half our difficulties at a running leap scarcely call them other than light afflictions which are but for a moment and are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So Spurgeon's developing now the the imagery of running. He's using it almost uh, as a a developed uh, metaphor now for the, the spiritual life. Then running is a cheering pace says if you go hesitatingly and leisurely, you'll have time for doubts and fears to do their work. But when you come forward at a run, you don't have time to be dispirited. I think it's one of the reasons why people yell charge, not stroll, because uh, actually the very charge itself helps you to maintain the momentum. There's an energy about agility that will often give a man a fortitude which otherwise he might not have possessed. So when the Lord gives his servants grace to follow out their convictions as soon as they feel them, then they act courageously. First thoughts are best in the service of God. Second thoughts often come up timorously and limpingly and incite us to make provision for the flesh. There's nothing like a running pace, for by it courage may be maintained in our Lord and Master's cause. 
Then again, running is the winning pace. Run that you may obtain. If you're going to win the crown, it won't be by loitering, but by running with all your might. If you want a crown that shall sparkle and shine with many jewels of precious souls that you've brought to Christ, you're not going to win it by negligence, but by putting out all your God-given strength and living with all your might in your master's service. And then again, running is a fitting or appropriate pace for a believer. This is the, the paragraph as a whole. Listen to what he says. Jesus Christ deserves that we should run for him. He has done so much for us that we ought to spend and be spent in his service. For men who have so short a time to live, for men to whom such solemn interests are entrusted, for men who are so indebted to their best friend, for men so, who have so long a time before them in which to rest, even forever and ever, for men who expect so bright a reward, there ought to be no arguments needed to urge them to run with diligence the race that is set before them. I am persuaded that those Christians to whom God has given grace to live highly diligent, spiritual, useful lives would, if their humility would permit them, tell you that they found themselves far other men in the point of happiness than they were before they fell in love with life in earnest. To live in God's fear at a low rate is sorrowful work, but to live for God a high and self-denying life, to live in the light of his countenance, to lean one's head on Christ's bosom, to live in singleness of consecration and with fervour of purpose and devotedness of heart, this is to live, as it were, like Milton's angel in the very midst of the sun, never lacking for life and heat and light, because dwelling near to God and existing alone for God in the power of of his might. So Spurgeon's now speaking to us and saying, don't be discouraged. Consider what, what is worthwhile about running. Don't, don't decide before you've even begun to set out that, that running is not for you. It, it will warm your soul. It will help you clear the ground. It will cheer your heart. It will enable you to run so as to win. And it's just the pace that a believer ought to maintain. Now, he says, the third meditation from the text concerns the runner's girdle. They that wait upon the Lord shall run and not be weary. But what is it to wait upon the Lord? If you're going to do this, if you're uh, ready to run, what must you do? You must wait upon the Lord. This is essential in the running because it's the only way that you won't be weary. You see, so often we look at ourselves and say, I can't run, I'll be too tired. My friends, we know what it is to be exhausted. We know what it is to do uh, service when, when we're just going to lie down and, and sleep or, or roll up in a ball and crawl into a corner. We know what it is to be uh, brought to the point even of exhaustion. And, and Spurgeon says that there's a terrible instance where where hundreds are led to start on a sort of running which soon comes to an end and he says it's it's not enough just to have this outward profession or to to count the numbers you need to be waiting upon the lord and that means first of all you yield yourself by god's grace to be god's servant many some many says have never realized that a saved child of god is from the moment he is saved a servant of god they talk of being saved, but they serve themselves. Now, Lord, I give myself up to you, says the true heart, and from this day forth every day and every hour of the day I desire to study thine interest, to do thy business, to promote thine honour and to bring thy gospel fresh renown. 
That's the kind of resolution that a servant of God has in his soul. If you join a Christian church because you're a little excited and thought you were converted and still live a selfish life seeking your own comfort and not the glory of God, you will grow weary of religion and very soon you will give it up and go back to the world from whence you professed to come out. No, you must be a man, you must be a woman who has yielded yourself to God and said, here am I, send me. What do you want me to do? That's the disposition of the one who runs, a consecrated servant of God. Then it means also to go to God for all your strength, for all the strength that there is in any man by nature is perfect weakness with regard to spiritual things. Human strength only opposes the work of grace until the divine strength comes in and sweeps our human strength away and finds in our perfect weakness a reservoir into which the strength of God may pour itself to fill us with the fullness of God. So if you think you can preach without the help of the Holy Ghost, you'd better not try. If there be anyone here, he says, who thinks he can live a holy life without the constant help of God's Spirit, he's going to make a very unholy life of it. If you're called, though, to a high and lofty enterprise far beyond your strength, if you've faith enough to go onward in the name of God, leaning upon his promise, believing that his mighty arm will not fail you, then you shall rejoice in divine all-sufficiency. And the more you lean on it, the more you shall feel it your pleasure and your wealth to be independent of all but God. The more you dare for God, the more easy you will find it to dare something yet beyond." Oh, Christian man, then, he says, never think you can trust God too much. Never think that faith can go too far, but shun self-confidence. Dread the self-reliance which some cry up as a virtue, but which is to the spiritual life the vice most to be dreaded of all. Then he says, add into that the expectancy of hope. Yes, we're bowed down with infirmities and we're lame and halt. Our eyes droop, our hands droop, our knees shake. I know not what besides, he says, and all because we have not confidence in God, though we know he cannot lie, and though we're sure he never did, nor can, fail the soul which puts its trust in him. Oh, for a higher spiritual life, where must it begin but in a deeper confidence in God and in a fuller expectation of the fulfilment of his promise? Where is this filling with the Holy Spirit, he's asking? Oh, young men, and to this I think I may call the fathers and the matrons too. Let us ask the Lord, who gave us the ger- first the germ of faith, to increase our faith, that from this time forward we may wait at the posts of his doors, expecting that his mercy will enrich us and a abide patiently at the foot of Jacob's ladder, expecting that the angels will bring us down the blessings which our prayers have sought through Jesus Christ. These three things together then, this is what it means to wait upon the Lord. A singleness of eye in serving God, a simplicity of dependence upon the divine power and constant expectation that the power will be given. Faith in in its various aspects. And so then, the last point, the runner's staff, here is your consolation, he shall not be weary. And here's the reality. You see, Spurgeon isn't just saying some of you are young and you don't know what it is to be tired, so get running and then you'll flake out. And he doesn't say no one is ever weary. No, what he says is weariness in the way to heaven is not at all an uncommon trial. Some of us can say that we are not weary of God's work, though we often grow weary in it. 
It were easy to complete the Christian life if it consisted in half a dozen acts of piety and then all were over. But to stand, and having done all to stand, to bear the wear and tear of daily temptation, to be roasted, as it were, before the slow fire of constant trials from inward sins and satanic suggestions, above all, to pass through that horrible land called the Enchanted Ground, and to feel the sleepiness that comes over you there, to keep awake in a sluggish body, and to continue persevering against flesh and blood for twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty years perhaps. Why, this is a thing impossible to flesh and blood. It is only possible to God, and only as God gives us grace shall we be able to achieve it. To keep up the running pace through life is an impossibility of impossibilities, except much grace be given. And we have virtually the promise that it shall be given when we are told that we shall not be weary. So if you're listening to this podcast, or, or doing it for, the, for that matter, and you're exhausted, and your eyes are drooping, and you feel flaky and, and ready just to, uh, to drop out, no, says Spurgeon. You can keep going. Your body may be weary. Your eyes may be drooping. Your hands may be falling down, maybe uh, dragging along. But there is strength from God. How is that? First of all, because you've got daily strength given them for all their daily needs. They'd be worn out if they had nothing more to rely on than the first portion received. But God does not allot us a stock of grace to draw from, and when that's exhausted, award us another measure. But as day by day the manna fell, so hour by hour fresh grace streams into our souls. That's so refreshing, isn't it? So encouraging, so comforting. We're lights, but not like a candle that burns supported by its own fat, but like gas lamps. If you cut the communication between the jet of flame and the gas supply, the light's gone. But God keeps supplying us. We only live by fresh communications from the great fountainhead of all spiritual life, and no runner can weary while fresh strength is given. Then we're not weary, because as we advance, we find fresh matter to interest us. What scenery it is through which the Christian man walks, the towering mountains of predestination, the great sea of providence, the mighty cliffs of divine promise, the green fields of divine grace, the river that makes glad the city of God. Oh, what scenery surrounds the Christian and what fresh discoveries he makes at every step. And that's what stops us... Uh, just dragging our feet on this pilgrimage because there's freshness and there's liveliness and there's holy novelty around us. As we advance in the King's highway of righteousness, there are such fresh things in our experience and in Christian truth that we run and are not weary. Then above all, the one fact that keeps the Christian from this enervating weariness is that he looks to the end, to the recompense of the reward. We're waiting eagerly for the resurrection. The body may be growing feeble, but the soul strong. The tabernacle falling, but the sacred priestly soul within carries on with its devotion with greater zest. So when you would think that the pilgrim's soul must faint, he grows vigorous. When he sinks to the earth, he stretches out his hand and grasps his crown. Spurgeon says, oh, I want to speak tonight as I could, but, but I've scarcely got any ability equal to my task. You wonder if he was tired, and I don't mean that sarcastically. So he says, I want to get this across to you. So let me finish with these three or four sentences. 
If there be any brother in Christ here who was once a runner but's begun to slacken his pace, let him beware of slackening. That's a business which goes on much faster than we think, and I question whether or not there's an easy stopping place in a downhill life. If you do a little less, you'll do still less. This is a terrible portrait of so many churches, people who are doing a little less day by day. If you backslide by little and by little, you shall backslide into a terrible fall. Keep the pace up, brother, by the grace of God, and on your knees tonight if you've begun to grow cold and chilled, pray him who washed you years ago in his precious blood to take you afresh and baptise you in the Holy Spirit and in fire, that from this time forward you may serve him better than you ever did in the best part of your precious life. Spurgeon's saying you don't have to be a, a stroller and a foot dragger all your life. You don't have to sink to a slow pace and keep it. You can cry out to God that you might run and not grow weary, that you might walk and not become faint. So he says, if you don't love Christ, if you've never served Christ, how will you answer him? Oh, that you might be brought to trust him and to love him. And you who love him, may you love him better and run and not be weary and walk and not faint. And God shall be the glory and yours the comfort. You may have been weary listening to this. I hope at least you've been reminded that there is spiritual strength and vigour in and from the God Most High, that you might be lifted up. And if you've begun to slacken the pace, oh, may God help us to press forward. I hope it's been a blessing to you to be listening to these uh, podcasts and to listen to this one today. My name is Jeremy Walker, and you've been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon. You can find more about uh, what we're doing here at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can even sign up for a newsletter. If you'd like to leave a review, you're listening to this on a, on a particular app, then please do. It'll make a big difference to what we're able to accomplish. And I hope you'll join us again next week. As you may know, we, we work our way through Spurgeon's sermons once, uh, uh, once a day and then a, a select sermon every week, a representative sermon to help give us a real flavour. Today's has been 876, The Unwearied Runner, and God willing, next week will be A Well-Ordered Life, Sermon 878. So do join us for that. You can read from Sermon 878 to 884 if you want to do the weekly readings, or you can pick up on 878 and just get the one dose in for the week. But either way, I hope you'll join us again, and in the meantime, may God help me and you to run with all his might and to rest upon him that we might not become weary and faint but know the strength of God by his spirit in our souls. May God help us to do it. Amen.